last week we we looked at why is Exodus such an appropriate book, and we talked about how we are we're strangers in a strange land, traveling not in our home. Um, one of my I was talking with the the team this morning. If if I could encourage you guys to do not just one thing, but if I could encourage you guys to do something, is have a variety of study Bibles uh, with different focuses and, and different emphases. This is one of my newest study Bibles, one of my favorite ones. It's rapidly becoming. And it's called the church history one. And so rather than theological commentary or anything like that, it just on every verse in the Bible, almost every verse, it has passages from famous church leaders throughout time, how they preach on this passage. And listen to what Matthew Henry says about Exodus. This, this really stuck out to me. The land of Egypt. So we, we introduced Exodus last week. This week, we're going to start. We're going to start with Exodus 1.8. We're going to look at Israel's bondage and captivity beginning. But Matthew Henry pays note to and draws attention to, up until this point, Egypt had been a good thing for the Israelite people. I mean, think about it. This is where they were saved from famine. And so Matthew Henry comments this. He says, The land of Egypt here at length became to Israel a house of bondage, though previously it had been a happy shelter and settlement for them. The place of our satisfaction may soon become the place of our affliction, and it may prove the greatest cross to us is which we said, this will comfort us. Those may prove our sworn enemies whose parents were our faithful friends. Nay, the same persons that loved us may possibly turn to hate us. Therefore, say not concerning any place on this side of heaven, this is my rest forever. And I just, I loved Henry refocusing that for us. And so as we prepare to dive into Exodus 1 this morning, that's my prayer, is that our hearts would be heavenly. Uh, and so if you guys will join me in prayer before we open scripture, please. Lord, thank you for who you are. Thank you for the eternal nature of who you are and of your promises and your goodness. God, may we be heavenly minded. May we be heavenly-minded in the way we approach one another, in the way we approach our jobs, our, our neighborhoods, our fellowship, our friendships, our families. You are worthy of our everything. May we stand on Christ alone. In this time of continued worship, through submission to your word, through engaging with your word, reading your word, learning from it, being sharpened by it, May you refine us, sanctify us, make us holier, Lord. Make this an offering pleasing to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're going through a bit of a larger chunk today, so we're not going to read it all at once. Uh, I'm going to read through aspects of it very quickly. I am going to be skipping over some verses. We're going to kind of try and lay out a big picture, and then we're going to take the time and we're actually going to go through section by section. Uh, but so this is in Exodus 1, starting in verse 8. We finished up with verse 7 last week. And so starting in, in verse 8, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not jo know G Joseph, and he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. Then you jump kind of ahead. Israel continues to grow. And in verse 15, we see, Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, When you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. 
Jump down to verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let the daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes, placed it among the reeds in the river. His sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. She saw the basket among the reeds, sent her servant woman, she took it. She saw the child, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? The girl went and called the child's mother. The child grew older. She brought him back to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. So that's a very short number of verses to really move the timeline, a pretty significant jump, if you think about it. And so what we're going to do now is we consider this theme of God is greater than. We're going to go through this passage, and we're going to look at how the story of Exodus starts to become a lot more personal. We go from big historical overview of Joseph and his family lineage and all the generations that came to Egypt, and then we begin to deal with the oppression and the slavery. And even that gets moved through very quickly until we come to a specific individual named Moses. But I first want to look at verses 8 through 14. One of the things that is a part of all of our lives, I don't care what your job income bracket is, I don't care what neighborhood you live in, your demographics in any way, shape, or form, there is unknown in your life. And there is the open-ended question, what if? What if? What if while you're at church today, a pipe burst in your house and your house floods? What if while you're at church today, a plane drops a suitcase with a million dollars and it lands in your backyard to find when you go home? What if? There are a lot of unknowns. There are a lot of what ifs in our lives. And we see in these first few verses, rather 8 through 14 of chapter 1, that there's a problem when we approach what if with a very unhealthy, fearful mindset. It really can create dangerous situations and problematic situations. So we're going to look at an unhealthy what-if mindset, and then we're going to compare that scripturally to God's people throughout time who demonstrated a holy acceptance of the unknown and did not relent in their pursuit of holiness, of submission to the Lord. So starting in verse 8, now we'll read all of them, some of them we just read. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Do you hear his negative, cyclical, or cynical, spiraling thought? Hey, there's already a lot of the people. What if there's even more of them? What if war breaks out, and what if they join? I mean, that is three hypotheticals. 
That's like me saying, like going home, like, Addy, we need to sell our house today because what if tomorrow economic disaster strikes and what if we try to sell our house, but what if next week it burns down and we can't sell our house, so we need to move today. That's, that's a crazy way of approaching life. Just going down this, what if this bad thing happens, which then leads to this bad thing happening, which leads to this bad thing happening. So what does he do in the immediate present to deal with all of these possible what ifs? He says, we've got we've to start dealing with them shrewdly. So what do they do? Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. What was one of his fears? Hey, there's already a lot of them. What if there were more of them? We'll deal with them shrewdly. How'd that work out? Were there now less of them? No, the more they were oppressed, the more they spread. Doesn't seem like spiraling into that cynical what if is helping them out a whole lot. The Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. We can all play what if. All day long, every day, we can play what if, what if, what if, what if. Or, as we're going to look at Scripture, as we're going to look at God's people throughout time, or we can accept the unknown. And I'm not saying we be rash. I'm not saying we be foolish. I'm not saying we make, we make bad money decisions. We make poor life choices. I'm not talking about any of that. I'm just talking about a simple, holy acceptance of, hey, I don't know everything. I don't know what tomorrow holds. And rather than be stuck in a spirit of fear, what does scripture say? The Lord did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. So maybe I can accept the unknown. Maybe I can accept the what if, and I can still live a holy manner in that. Maybe I can pursue the Lord's calling regardless of the what if. Consider God's people. Daniel 3, 17 to 18, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're in trouble. They're before the king. He said, hey, don't do this. They did it anyway because to not do so would have been to deny God. The king said, you got to worship me. They were like, nope, we're worshiping the real God. So now they're in trouble. They're brought before the king. He's like, you're about to deal with this punishment. This is what brings us to Daniel 3, 17 to 18. And this is how they respond to him. If this be so, if you are going to throw us into this furnace, if this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, one of the greatest three-word phrases in scripture, but if not, what if? What if we are thrown into the furnace? Well, if we are thrown in the furnace, God can rescue us. What if he doesn't rescue us? But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. They were faced with a what if. And they said, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter what the what if is. We've been called to holiness. We've been called to right living. We're going to pursue that. Acts 20, 22 to 24, Paul's writing. He says, now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every city, imprisonment and afflictions await me. I don't know the details. What if it's really bad? What if it's the worst imprisonment I've ever faced? What if it's the worst affliction I've ever faced? Don't know. I'm going there. Why? Because the Holy Spirit told me to. What's he say? But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. 
What if? What if they don't like me testifying to the gospel of the grace of God? What if it costs me friendships? What if they look at me differently? What if they stop wanting to hang out with me? What if I get in trouble? This is the purpose of my life. He says, I'm going here. I don't know what's going to happen. What if? Could be a lot of things. But I do know God has called me to go there and to preach the gospel, and that's what I'm going to do. Hebrews 11, 8 to 10. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called out to go to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Why? For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So the question is really very simple for you as a follower of Christ. Whether you're here, you're online, you watch later. Is your life ruled by what if or by but if not? Well, what if, what if, what if? Yeah, what if? Or what if, did, and do you also notice that we never do what if in the best possible direction? What if I share the gospel with my coworker and my boss finds out and I get fired? And what if my spouse also gets fired and now we have no income and then we lose our house? What if we're now homeless because I told someone Jesus loves them? You notice it's never, hey, what if I share the gospel with my coworker and my boss overhears it and he's intrigued and he accepts Christ and within a week, the entire company gets saved. I mean, seriously, when's the last time you went what if in a positive direction? When's the last time you went what if in a good direction? What if, what if I invite this neighbor over who I can't stand and it winds up becoming one of my best friends in life? He or she becomes my best friend in life. What if it transforms our whole neighborhood? What if we tried something new and it totally radically transformed the way I live in a holy way? You notice we never take what if in the good direction? So we can either say what if, what if, what if, what if, and we can either spiral into cynicism and fear and bitterness and doubt, or we can say, yeah, what if? But if not, I'm still called to be holy. I'm still called to do this. I'm still called to live this way. I'm still called to love this way. I'm still called to serve this way, to sacrifice this way. I mean, what if, God, to use what if, what if God's church actually had a holy acceptance of the unknown and approached it in full confidence of the Lord? What if God's church actually personally took responsibility for loving, for serving, for reaching? And it's not going to look the same for all of us. We're not, one of my favorite books, one of the wisest books ever read or written, one of the best books I've ever read, an incredibly academic book titled Chuck Wood and the Woodchuck's Big Game. And it's written for like third graders. And the whole story revolves around Chuck Wood, this woodchuck who coaches his son's baseball team. And the whole book is hilarious because every kid wants to play the exact same position. And so he lets them. And in the first inning, they all go out to the pitcher's mound and all nine kids throw the ball and the kid gets a hit and there's no fielders. So Chuck Wood sits the kids down. He's like, did we learn a lesson? And they're like, yes, we can't all be pitchers. And he's like, good. Next inning, they all run out and they sit behind the plate to be catchers. Great lesson. 
beautifully academic book. Guys, we're not going to all do the same thing. We're not going to all look the exact same. We're not called to. We're not designed to. We're assembled as a house which has different pieces that work together. We're assembled as a body which serves different functions to work together. So what if each of us, instead of wondering about the unknown and fear and trepidation, what if each of us approached it with an understanding that I am called to be holy in it and to fill the role that God has called me to fill? That's a fun what if to imagine. I think we see that in the start of this section of Exodus. And then from there, what do we see directly related to that? What is one of the hugest components to switching that mindset from a fearful what if to a holy but if not? The fear of the Lord. I mean, the midwives are faced with a what if. Okay, what if we obey Pharaoh, we obey this authority over us, and we do what he asks us to do? Or what if we disobey? They're faced with a decision to make. Think about it. Literally, they have a decision to make. Pharaoh says, do this. They have a decision to make. They choose not to. We know what their decision is. What do we see? Why do they do that? Why do they accept the, hey, whatever the consequences are going to be, we accept them. What does it say? Verse 15 of chapter 1. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the, women, the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwives come to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. We're going to look at this in two halves. First, we can never emphasize this enough. We can never understand this enough. The fear of God must be the greatest thing in our lives. What do we mean by fear? There's three levels of the Hebrew word yira, which comes from the root word yara, but basically context tells you how to interpret which of the three levels. On a basic level, there is the emotional fear. I am afraid. I could fill that in with, I am afraid of snakes. If a snake fell from the ceiling, you would hear me let out a very girly shriek and sprint out of the room. That's funny. We all have those fears. What about when the fear is like, I'm so afraid of my child getting sick. My child is sick. I'm afraid of what the end result might be. My parent is sick. My sibling is sick. My job's in jeopardy. Our house is falling apart. Like, There's fear. There is emotional fear, level one. Depending on context, that word fear might mean that. That's not what it means in this case. Then there's level two, respect. You'll see scripture that talks about fear the emperor, fear the king. This is the respect you afford a position in your life, the respect you afford authority figures in your life. Scripture says we are to respect those in authority of us. This is that level of fear. Okay, I may not agree with everything you do. I may not like you on a personal level. We're not hanging out Friday, but you know what? You are my boss. I respect you. Level two fear. That's not what this is talking about. Then there's level three fear. And that is holy reverence and awe. That is the fear that's reserved for the Lord. That is, I recognize who you are. And I live my life in light of that. 
And so really what fear means is to give proper weight to. If I were to summarize the three levels and then based on conduct, but to give proper weight to. Sometimes fear can be unhealthy. Sometimes fear can be a healthy response. If a rabid bear came through that door and you guys just sat there and you were like, nah, be like, no, you should probably be freaking out right now because I can't fight a bear and none of you can fight a bear one-on-one. Right, so, th- so I'm not saying that all fear is automatically bad if it's level one. We have to learn to recognize and distinguish. I'm not saying that level two fear is totally inappropriate and has no place. No, scripture is very clear. But what, mu- what, mu- what, mu- oh my goodness. What it must, there we go, sometimes you gotta slow down. What it must always come back to is an appropriate level three fear of the Lord. Reverence, awe, recognizing who he is and living your lives in light of that weight. Consider scripture. Proverbs 16, 6, by steadfast love and faithfulness iniquity, by steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for, and by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. We just read Daniel 3, 17 to 18, where it says they feared the Lord, and that is why they did not worship as the king commanded them to worship. You also have Daniel 6, 5 to 10, talking about Daniel himself. In Daniel 6, the high officials and the satraps sought to find ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. Listen to this verse, man. If, if, okay, what if? Let's go back to a what if, what, a fun what if. What if verse 4 were true of every Christian? I'm going to reread verse 4, and I want you to ask yourself, what if this verse were true of me in the way I live? Then the high officials and the satraps, the people who don't like Daniel, okay, sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. So the person who doesn't like you is trying to complain about you. The person who's not your biggest fan is trying to find fault with you. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found within him. What if the people who tried to complain about the church were like, yeah, we can't really find fault with the church. What if? Come on. So then what do they do? Then the men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O king Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. This is irreversible. This is concrete. Nothing is changing this. I mean, do you hear how many times it talked about, hey, it can't be revoked, it can't be undone, it can't be changed in accordance with everything? When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he was not operating in ignorance. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. So this isn't Daniel being obnoxious. This isn't Daniel picking a fight. This isn't Daniel being cocky and arrogant. He said, as he had done previously, this was his habit. This was his life. This was his routine was, I pray to the Lord unashamedly. The document is signed. The injunction is passed. The law is made. And Daniel goes about his habit. 
He doesn't change. Why? Because his fear level three of the Lord, when it contradicts the fear level two of the authority, supersedes his fear level one of what might happen. You see, all three, it doesn't use all those words. Please understand, it doesn't use all those words. But what you see happening is you see Daniel recognizing that God's authority is more important in his life than the king's authority. And so he proceeds as he is called to do in a holy manner because the fear of the Lord drives him. Acts 5, 27 and 29, when they had brought the apostles, they set them before the council and the high priest questioned them saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. Fear of the Lord must be the greatest driving force in our life. A reverent worship of him. Yes, it must be the greatest force in your life. Well, really? The greatest? Look, it's, it's easy. We all know. If I were to ask you, should you worship God or a football team on Sunday? We all know the answer to that one. That's not what gets us hung up. That's not where we trip up. That's not where we stumble. That's not where I stumble. What gets hard, where the proverbial rubber meets the road, so to speak, is what about when it comes to good things in our lives? My wife, my daughter, you all, the church I've been entrusted with for a time. No, I have to fear God greater than I fear my wife or my daughter. I have to love the Lord greater than I love my family. Jesus said, if any of you comes to me and you love your father and mother more than me, you are not worthy of following me. Now, this does not mean we hate our father and mother. This does not mean we have no love for our friends. This does not mean I do not love you all, but what it means is the reverent awe and worship for the Lord must be the greatest cry on my heart. It's got to be. It's got to dwarf all else. Now, I do believe that in that, I will love my wife and daughter better. I will be a holier husband. I will be a holier father. I believe that if I am loving the Lord with everything in me, if I am pursuing him with everything in me, he will make me a holier leader. I do believe that. That is not separate from. We have to stop separating those things. But what must come first in every situation is a fear of the Lord. What is the holiest thing to do here? What will make me like Christ? What will make me proclaim the gospel? What will lead to the advancement of God's kingdom? A reverent heart that recognizes the weight of his majesty and what that is due in our lives in response. This slide's going to be up there very quickly. This was what we just talked about before we got into it. If you want to take a picture, take a picture. If you want it later, talk to me. But these were the three fears. I wanted to explain them before we got into it. But this is if anybody likes the notes like that. Because uh, then what do we see when there's proper fear? As we continue through this story, as we continue through this narrative that God has given us to teach us, to refine us, we see that God's provision and protection is greater than that possible level one fear, that possible threat, that possible opposition. I mean, did you catch some of those verses in talking about the midwives. 
But the midwives feared God, verse 7. So then you jump down to verse 20 and 21 again. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Ultimately, our, our response to the Lord, I think, reveals our heart of trust in him. I think our response to the Lord's calling reveals how seriously we take his promises. I am with you. I will not forsake you. Yeah, but are you really? Are you really with me in this conversation? What does Jesus promise in John when he's talking to the apostles about the Holy Spirit? He says, I will give you the helper and he will teach you what to say. Yeah, but will he really? I'm just not so good with words. He calls us to live with generosity. Yeah, but will he really provide? I mean, what does he say in Malachi? Bring me what I am due. The Lord says, bring me what I am due and see if I don't pour out on you such a blessing that your storehouses can't contain it. We don't give to God to test him. We're not testing scripture like that. But if he's called us to live in such a way and we say, yeah, but will he really come through? I mean, our response in our fear of the Lord indicates how seriously we take his word and promises. And so, friends, I'm here to remind you, Scripture reminds us that God is always faithful. God's provision, God's protection is always greater than whatever obstacle we may face. Now, that doesn't mean we won't face hardships. God's provision does not equal no difficulty. Don't get it twisted. That's prosperity, gospel, garbage. God's provision means you'll never have anything bad happen. No, that's so unbiblical. It's absurd. But what it means is his provision is greater than our circumstances, no matter what it may look like. Listen to scripture. 1 Samuel 2, 30 and 35. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel declares. So what, what has happened in 1 Samuel 2? For anybody, I'm guessing most of us, and honestly, I don't know if I would have remembered if I hadn't studied it this week off the top of my head. But 1 Samuel 2, what has happened to build up to it? You have Samuel the prophet leading Israel. You have his sons, Hophni and Elias, and they have been sinning. They have been abandoning the holiness of the priestly standard. They have been rejecting what God has called them to. They've been rejecting God's standards, God's call in their lives, and they've been leading the people in a very unholy, ungodly way. And so God is rebuking Samuel for what his family has done, what he has allowed his sons to do. 1 Samuel 2, 30 to 35, or 30 and 35. Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And you jump to 2 Samuel 7, 8 to 9. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. We've talked about this time and time again. David had a horribly difficult life. I mean, at different times in David's life, he was fleeing from his best friend's dad, his son, his own military commander. Like, there are very few people in David's life who were important to him who didn't try and kill him at some point. 
And what does God say? No, in this you have seen my provision. In this you have seen my protection. I am with you. I have established you. Ecclesiastes 8.12 Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life. I'll go first. I have at times heard myself say, that's not fair that it worked out well for them. That's not fair. I know how they live. Why did they go get to do all the cool things I want to do? Why did they get the nice stuff I wish I had? I know how you live. I know how you act. I know the way you treat people. God, that's not fair. I've said that. I've had that horrible, evil, selfish, greedy, narcissistic heart. If we're honest with ourselves, I bet most of us have. We look at the sinners and we say, that's not fair. What does it say in Ecclesiastes? Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. Ultimately, God's provision is greater than anything else this world offers or anything else this world threatens with. We see it in the lives of the midwives. Isn't it also fascinating? This is just a random historical detail. Isn't it fascinating that the midwives get named and the Pharaoh doesn't? I mean, you think of our perspective of influence and positions of power, and it's like, that's boss guy. Here are the women by name. I think that's cool. I just, I think it's cool. That's why I like studying scripture for stuff like that. It's fun. So what do we continue to see? We look at, okay, we look at what, what, if, what about unhealthy what-ifs versus a holy acceptance of the unknown. And then when there is a holy acceptance of the known, unknown, we can respond in fear of the Lord. We can live our lives in fear of the Lord. We can behave accordingly. And in fear of the Lord, what do we see? We see that his provision and his protection is greater than all else. And how does the story then conclude with a reminder that God's plan cannot be thwarted. And really, it's not how the story concludes. It's how the story has gone along the whole way. God's plan cannot be thwarted. God's plan was to raise up Moses. The enemy says, okay, we're going to kill all baby boys. No, God's plan cannot be thwarted. Like, it, it, it's, I mean, really think about that. Like, these are the stories that we learn in the kids wing with the flannel graph. Who remembers flannel graph, Right? You learn with the flannel graph, and then we get older, and we stop thinking about just how cool these stories are. Like, this is such an incredible story of God's miraculous provision. Not only is Moses saved, his mom gets to raise him and be paid for it. If you look at Egyptian culture, this was a very common practice at the time where they would want a child in the royal family, but they were like, oh, we're royals, we're not going to really care for a baby. And they would pay a nursewife to care for the baby. Moms, how many of you would have loved if some rich third party was like, hey, that thing you're doing, raising your child, I'm going to give you an exorbitant salary to do so. That sounds pretty great. You want to talk about God's miraculous provision? Not only does she have to raise the child, not in fear, but now it's like, no, now you're going to get rewarded for this and blessed for this. Isaiah 14, 24. The Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, 
so shall it be. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. The simplicity of that verse. I mean, truth doesn't get any more basic than that. The Lord of hosts has sworn, has taken an oath. As I have planned, so shall it be. As I have purposed, so shall it stand. There's no hesitation in that. There's no maybe in that. That's concrete, definitive. That should fill us with confidence and strength and joy and perseverance and peace amidst whatever circumstances we face. As the Lord has said, so shall it be. Consider what else Isaiah says about this. Isaiah 46 starting in verse 8. Remember this and stand firm. Remember this and stand firm. Take this to heart. Put your Bibles down. Like I love when people read along, but for this one, just listen. Do yourself a favor and listen. Listen to God speaking to you. This isn't my terrible voice that cracks at different times. This is God speaking through his word to his children. So please listen to this. If you need to close your eyes, close your eyes. In fact, real quick, Lord, may we hear this with fresh ears and a fresh heart. Use this as only you can. Thank you for this. It's in Jesus' name we pray and read. Amen. Psalm, or Isaiah 46, starting in verse 8. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of counsel from a far country, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Amen. I mean, that's God, that's Yahweh, that's Alpha and Omega, the creator of the universe, who sustains all things by a word of his power, who chose the manger, who chose the cross, who chose the grave, knowing he had the authority to conquer the grave. That is God. Emmanuel, Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Nisi, El Samach Gili, all these names we've looked at. That is God saying, hey, what I say I do, I do. It will not change. It cannot change. It will not be shaken. It cannot be shaken. I am from of old. I declared from ancient times the things that have not yet happened. His plans cannot be thwarted. And in his plans, he can and does use unexpected people in unexpected ways. Who are the bad guys in Exodus 2? Don't be afraid to shout it out. There's a right answer. Who are the bad guys? The Egyptians. Are all the Egyptians the bad guys? Seems to me like God uses an Egyptian to save Moses. Ready for fun? These are the fun questions that make you guys not want to talk to me afterwards. Think of the political party you can't stand. Oh, yeah. 
Is everybody who votes differently from you automatically a bad person that God can't use to make you holier? Yeah, let's talk about idols. We made a joke about them earlier. You realize in week 18 of the NFL games, Bills versus Miami, a Bills fan was killed by a Miami fan after the game? How messed up is that? You think God can't use the people who you dislike, disagree with, even over dumb stuff? You think God can't use the people you dislike, disagree with over serious stuff? No, sometimes God uses unexpected people and unexpected means. We made a point of highlighting that the midwives are named. Why? Because at that time, they would have been really low on the rung of the ladder. I mean, at that time, in that society, they had multiple things going against them. They were women. Men were more important. They were Hebrew. Egyptians were more important. And they were like common laborer midwives. They weren't even like leadership. And that's who God used. So who are you? I'm a common nobody. No. You're a son or daughter of God. You're a conqueror and co-heir with the king. Jesus calls you his brother and sister. Come on. God can't use you? You can't be the unexpected person? You can't be the unexpected conversation? You can't be the unexpected means that he carries his plan out with? Don't let the enemy feed you that line. Man, please don't. The single saddest thing Christians say to me is, well, not me. God used Rahab, a prostitute. You won't use the biblical word because that's even more offensive to our ears than a prostitute. God used Gideon, a coward, from the nobody clan of the nobody tribe of the nobody family. God's, God used David. Wait a minute, I thought David was one of the heroes of the Bible. Sure. Let's also call him out for what he did. As a king, he spied on a woman taking a bath. So right away, we've got several laws that are broken by our own standards today. Then he used his authority. Don't get, it, don't get it mixed up. David used his authority to make her come to the palace and sleep with him. That's sexual assault. Then he got her pregnant, and to cover it up, he had her husband murdered. Are any of the things running through your mind like that when you name your kid David? Well, son, we named you David because we want to eventually have you murder somebody whose wife you knocked up. Does that shock us? Yeah, that shocks us. Why? Because we're broken, sinful people who God uses to demonstrate that he is the holy perfecter. He is the sanctifier. He is the source of all things good. You look at the apostles. You think they were perfect? Peter with his self-control issues? Paul, the greatest persecutor of Christians the world has ever known? I mean, his apostles bailed on Jesus. This is who God uses. He uses people we might not expect. He uses means we might not expect. Do yourself a favor, when you're reading through the New Testament, notice all the different ways that Jesus heals people. Sometimes with it's a word, sometimes it's with a word, hey, be healed. Sometimes it's with physical touch, 
Sometimes it's by spitting in the dirt and making mud and slapping it on the guy's eyes. Like Jesus works in unexpected ways. God uses unexpected people. Because God sees not as we see. 1 Samuel 16, 7. Lord looks on the heart. We look on the outward appearance. Even consider this detail that we read in Exodus. Exodus 2, and then we're going to jump ahead to Exodus 18. Exodus 2, 13 to 14. When Moses went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Exodus 18, 13. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. How about some nice irony there? Who made you judge? God. And you're going to sit, and I'm going to judge. Was Moses perfect? No. Were any of those people perfect? No. God is perfect. God's plan is perfect. God's power is perfect. God's means are perfect. God's provision is perfect. So why can't you and I be the unexpected person in the unexpected way that he uses for his glory? You're filled with the Holy Spirit. Why can't you be the one that God uses? Why can't that one conversation be the one that God uses? Why can't that act, that gesture, that act of service, that gift, why can't that be the one thing that changes someone's mind? Guys, the world is desperate for this. The world needs this. They need to be loved. Before we get to the very final slide, I want to tell you a story about a, a comic book writer, Mark Wade. Mark Wade, very famous comic book writer. Don't worry if you don't know him. I realize comic books aren't everybody's thing. Mark Wade, when he was younger, when he was a teen, he was going to commit suicide. And the last thing he wanted to do, he's like, I like movies. I'm going to go see a movie. And then I'm going to kill myself. He went and saw Superman. I don't remember which one. This was decades ago. But he went and saw Superman. And when he came out of the theater, he, he tells this story. This is a story I've heard Mark, not in person. I've seen the video. I've heard Mark Wade tell this story at a convention. He came out of the theater and he was like, I can't kill myself. Because Superman wouldn't want me to. Because Superman would care about me. How broken is this world that even the affirmation of a fictional character resonates with a hurting heart? You think people don't need to know that there is a real personal God who loves them, who cares about them? Hey, why'd you do that nice thing for me? God loves you. What? You know how many doors that conversation has opened up? I let a guy go in front of me at Starbucks one time. Literally, I was like, hey, go in front of me. He's like, why? I said, I'm doing an order for a whole office. It's going to take up a lot of time. I don't want to waste your day. He's like, why do you care about my day? I just said, because God loves you. He's like, what? I'm not saying you got to be the next Billy Graham. I'm saying you've got to be a holy daughter, son of the king, who lives their life in fear of the Lord. And then don't be shocked when he uses unexpected people in unexpected ways. I, I love Exodus. I love what he teaches us through it. So this week, as we consider this, 
Read 2 Kings 5, 1 to 14, just 14 verses. You don't like to read two, two verses a day. You can do two verses a day. Call me and I will read them to you over the phone. 2 Kings 5, 1 to 14. As we pray, pray as led by that passage of scripture. If you're familiar with it, it's the story of King Naaman, which is such a great story of God's sovereignty, God humbling a uh, haughty heart. I love this story. It irks me, it grates against my pride, and that's part of why I love this story. So let's read 2 Kings 5, 1 to 14. Pray as led by that. We've been working on John 17, 17 for two months, so we're going to move on. If you want to continue to work on John 17, 17, great. But we're going to read Exodus 4, 11 and 12, and we're going to internalize it. We're going to meditate on it. We're going to soak it in. We're going to saturate our lives with it. Let's read that together just to start this first time. But this is the new one that I want us to work in. And up until now, we've been doing one verse at a time. Now we're doing two verses. It's okay. We're going to grow. We're going to stretch our muscles. We're going to grow. This is Exodus 4, 11 to 12, after Moses has just whined to God about all the reasons why he couldn't be used. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. What if, <laughs> what if, we had those two verses engraved on our heart. So every time the enemy tried to convince us of an excuse of why we couldn't be used by God in this situation, those verses sprang to mind and the Holy Spirit said, no, 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 remember what you know? I made your mouth, I made your mind, I made your ears, I made your hands, I made you. Now go and speak. Let's know Exodus 4, 11 to 12. And then personal reflection. I'm dead serious on this. Families, if you're looking for ideas on how to incorporate this stuff, talk about it over the dinner table. Talk about it over meals. Talk about when you're hanging out. Hey, hun. Hey, kids. What do you think? I want you to all reflect. How has God equipped you and where has he uniquely placed you to have an impact? I promise you there's a way. I promise you. I 100% promise you there is a way that God has uniquely made you and uniquely positioned you to have an impact, to be used by him for his glory. I guarantee you there are people in your life, oh, pastor, it's your job to save people. I don't know everybody you know. Tim, name somebody you went to high school with. John, I don't know John. So if God's gonna reach John, it's not gonna be through me. Peggy, who's somebody you know from living in the area? Yeah, Debbie. Don't know Debbie. So if God's going to reach Debbie, it's not going to be through me, the pastor. Like you have people in your lives you are uniquely placed to that I don't have access to, that your fellow church family members don't have access to. You have gifts and abilities that will open up doors that I could never open up. You have passions and interests and hobbies that will gain you respect that I will not be able to, that the elders will not be able to. Like, you have been uniquely made and uniquely equipped and uniquely placed by God to be used for his glory. What is that way? If you don't know it, I'm dead serious. Please talk to me. We will sit down and figure it out. We'll go through. What are you good at? Where do you live? Where do you work? Who do you hang out with? Who do you talk to? Like, we will figure it out together. Okay? Because what if, 
what if this was a congregation where every single one of us took seriously our call to be an ambassador for the glory of Christ? What would that church look like? Let's pray. Lord, who are we that you are mindful of us? Who are we that you have given to us that we are even able to give to you? Who are we that you allow us to be called sons and daughters? All of this is from you so that we have no reason to boast in ourselves. God, may our heart beat for you. May our hearts yearn for you in every way, in everything. There's not an area of our lives that sin did not mar. There should not be an area of our lives that are not given to holiness. Use us, Lord. Use us, please. Whatever lies we listen to, whatever lies we believe, whatever cynicism we stay stuck in, whatever bitterness or despondency we focus on, God, teach us to approach this life with an all-consuming, reverent worship for you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Like I said, I, I know I shocked some of you guys with how I described Bible people today. But that shows... Well, when we do what if, we tend to go negative. When we think of the people from the Bible, we focus on how God used them. Why? Because God's sanctification is greater than our sin. So go be the sanctified child that you are and shock the world with how God uses you. Have a great week. Hey everyone, Pastor Sam here. Thanks for joining us for a Sunday sermon. If you're interested in more of the sermons from this series or some of our past sermon series that we've done, you can find them at discovercommunity.org under the sermon file. Uh, otherwise, you can subscribe to this channel to make sure you stay up to date on all our content. Thanks for joining us.